The other day I got fed up. Someone I worked with for a good amount of time just, I don't know, I'm tired of it. The insincerity and the bullshit. And I wrote him a DM that read, I'm going to say something, mainly because I'm old enough not to worry about offending, but also because I'm a guy who loves journalism so much that I try and help people. I don't find you sincere. And I've never found you sincere. Not as my editor, not as the guy who stopped editing me, not when you requested the blurb. And maybe I'm wrong, and maybe it's a total misread. But to me, that's how you come off. You seem like someone who views other authors more as competition than peers, who we use more than give. And again, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just the vibe. Slick, insincere. What can I say to this guy that'll help me? And one of the things I've learned in the painfully rough world of books is sincerity equals staying power. John Wertheim, Howard Bryant, Jane Levy, Jonathan Eig, I haven't always agreed with them on stuff, but I know they were honest and straightforward. So again, maybe I'm misreading and you're thinking, what the fuck? But if you really want the quote Perlman model, if that's a thing, I just think about how you come off and how you approach peers, where you're coming from, etc. You're a talented person, but the world is filled with thousands and thousands and thousands of people who can do what we do. It's not that special or important. Those who sustain do so via realness. And my point to listeners of this podcast is this. You don't have to be great. You don't even have to be good. But you do have to be sincere. Because sincerity is everything. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is John Wertheim, a Sports Illustrated editor, 60 Minutes correspondent, Tennis Channel regular, and author of the outstanding new book, Glory Days, The Summer of 1984, and the 90 Days It Changed Sports and Culture Forever. This is episode number 213. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your progress sucks. John Wertheim, you are um, you are the first person besides myself and my wife to be a two-time writer slinging yang uh, appearance uh, holder. So that's that's a pretty big deal. It's bi-coastal now too, right? Didn't we do it the first time in uh, first time in LA? So it was a hotel room in LA, and now we're in a uh, now we're in a bedroom in New York. All right, so I just want to say for people listening. Um, you get VIP treatment because I worked with you at SI. I've known you a very long time. We met in 1996 at Sports Illustrated. I know, it's depressing. And I met my wife at your wedding. It is true I was a fringe, fringe, fringe guest, correct? Like, not was true. It, it is kind of true, right? Uh, that's revisionist history. Didn't your wife say, well, who is this person? Who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, I know I met Grant Wall. Who's, who's that guy? It all worked out. There's a, there's a moral in there somewhere. The funny thing is Grant Wall was standing next to me at the wedding. And he's like, she's cute. Why don't you ask her out? True story. So Grant Wall maybe deserves more credit than you do because Grant was like, I'll hey, she's happily cute. share credit with Grant Wall. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. I, I swear. I knew that. Yeah. I mean, the story, she she gave the bridesmaid toast or whatever, and you sort of said. She's cute. Yeah. I was at a table with Grant, Hank Hirsch, Rich O'Brien, some others. I don't remember, but I remember. Stone? You had a very nice wedding, by the way. Thanks. Yeah. Um, you had a gut punch me with her since 1996. That's insane, can we, right? can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. When did we cross this threshold? We used to be kind of the young kids. When did we become the nostalgic... Uh, I just I just did a podcast yesterday and someone's like, the 80s rock, didn't they? I was like, yeah, kind of. And I was like, oh my God, I'm turning into that guy that's like uh, 
nostalgia for history 30 years ago. All right, this is actually a great subject. Before we get to your book, and you have a book out called Glory Days, but before we get to all that. Okay, so we started in 1996. We're in our early to mid-20s. We kind of rose up the SI ranks together. I think we became senior writers at the same time. So we were senior writers in our 20s. When do you think is the official line when you become, you go from being a young up-and-comer to just another schmo in the in the food chain? That's a great question. Um, I mean, some <laughs> of it is in the vocabulary, right? Sure. So you used to do this radio, you know, you do these radio shows, and they'd say, oh, we've got this, uh, and they mispronounce your name because no one's heard of you. Right. So, so that's a little sting, but it's also a little sting when they say, oh, a veteran, veteran writer. Yeah. And you're kind of like, oh. Um, no, but when, when do you, it's, Every cliche about aging is true, by the way. Every. You that? Everyone. Well, you blink and suddenly you're, uh, you have gray hair and you're in your 40s. True. Um, 100% true. No, but then you you really try to avoid... It's, it's hard because you're either turning into like old nostalgia guy or else you're like the uh, the bar mitzvah band that suddenly tries rapping. Like if you, <laughs> if you and no, but you walk in a locker room and if you and I are like speaking in slang and trying to uh, fit in with people half our age... You that, can't that say falls flat too. You can't tell the catcher for like the Detroit Tigers he's on fleek. Exactly. Number one, because no exactly. one says on fleek anymore, and number two, it would sound ridiculous even if we did say it at the right time. Ever tell you the Tracy Murray story? No. Remember Tracy Murray? UCLA. Yeah, very good. Great yeah. shooter. Great like, shooter. Washington uh, Wizard like, played for the uh, Lakers when I wrote about. I interviewed Tracy Murray for my book because he uh, played briefly. Yeah, for right. The yeah, exactly. Uh, but he was drafted by the Blazers. Okay. We were the same age when I worked first job out of school. I worked for the Portland Trail Blazers. And we're the, you know, same age, same year of school. We would, like, listen to music together. We're both, whatever, 21 years old. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say we're buddies, but, you know, we're exactly the same age and same interests, same slang, same cultural references. And that's the kind of person you build as a source. And you have a relationship with them and you have their phone number. And there was no texting then. But if it were the case now, this is someone you could call. I don't know how writers our age today build rapport with 21-year-olds. It's like, you know, it's like different radio frequencies that uh, that aren't coordinated. Um, you have the experience, you have the writing chops now that you didn't when you were 21, but you can never replace being the same age of the athlete. All right, so that's actually an interesting question. Could you, your first book was about the Williams sisters, and correct? Yeah. Yeah. And the Williams sisters, they're younger than you, but not ridiculously younger than you, where you could be in the same stratosphere, same conversations. Could you write that book about like Coco now? Could you do that book? Could you do a book about her, get access to her and expect her to open up to you in a way you would want someone to open up to you? I mean, I think you could. It just wouldn't be as a peer. It would be, this guy's my dad's age and, you know, he, he has the same... Middle-aged habits as, as my dad does. I and mean, I just think it would be a different... I think you could probably get them to open up, but it would be a much different relationship than, than peer-to-peer. So it doesn't make it a worse... No, it's just a different relationship you have with athletes. And you sort of, you know, we do this all the time, right? Oh, I was in high school when they were born. and But it it's really weird to think Coco is our daughter's age. Yeah, super weird. And you can relate to her because we have teenage daughters and we... You know, pick pick up some of the slang and know some of the TikToks, but it's in that paternal sense. It's not as a peer to peer. Do you feel? See, I always feel. I don't know if you feel this way though, because our careers have taken different paths as far as, into certain degrees. Do you feel at all? It's a fight to stay relevant. 
Um, that's a great question. I mean, I, I don't know what you know, what relevance is or means, and I think there's also this sort of this this dignity component, right? Sure. Um, I mean, I always tell the story where when I was growing up, you would run to get the paper to read Skip, Skip Bayless, Chicago columnist. You grew up in the You were growing up in Indiana. Grew up in Indiana. You want to say, what did Skip Bayless say about Michael Jordan? What did he say about the 91 playoffs when, uh, you know, the Bulls finally beat the Pistons and they get to play the Lakers? Right. Skip Bayless is probably more relevant now. He... I don't think has the respect among his peers. I, I don't. I don't think he's a, a, a figure you or I would want to model our careers on. No. He's relevant. He's got a lot of followers. He's uh, you know. I mean, I'm sure he trends more than you and I do. But I think um, relevance can come at a cost to integrity. What's is interesting because if you think about it, a lot of the right like I was covering baseball at Sports Illustrated, and most of the writers I was covering baseball with. Um, across the country, not just at SI, have vanished. They're just gone. Like the most of our peers who we came up with, most, not all, are no longer in the business, I would say. They just kind of have vanished off into the abyss. Um, and I always find that weird. Like I think about all the writers who I came up with and they're just gone. They just vanished. And somehow or another, we've been either dumb enough, fortunate enough, or smart enough to stick around a little bit. I think dumb enough. But see, here, here we go. We're, we're in the style. We're middle-aged nostalgia. Ah, Lupica. Remember the old days? Um, no, I mean, I think um, it's, some of these paths are interesting, right? I mean, people find new lives. It's actually kind of instructive, right? I mean, yeah. people, people find new ways to invent themselves, and people find new lines of work. Yeah, I mean, look, look at, uh, do, you know, do you know Lupica? I know, you know Lupica him? in the way that I used to watch him and think, what a dick. Really? Why? I, I, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's a big tennis guy, and his son works at tennis show. He and I have gotten quite friendly. <laughs> Um, Sorry. <laughs> but he's like, he writes kids' books. Yeah. And he's kind of, you know, he's not writing uh, the angry column off the Knicks game, but he's found a way to uh, make a living and live a nice life. And I, I feel like, you know, people, some people have completely have gone to law school, completely entered new fields, but other people do kind of interesting work with the same skill set. They're just not doing it in a newspaper or magazine. It's really interesting. Um Lupica, number one, I should actually have him on the show. He'd be a great guy. I mean, yeah, actually, I, I like, I like. Him. Yeah, you know what? And I, I think my impression of him—I don't know him personally. I just always my impression of him was when he was a columnist, and he kind of needed to be the center of attention. And I think part of that was probably actually sort of an act in the way probably Bayless is an act, and Stephen A is an act, and different guys become act, like. But I do think it's interesting. Like, um, I think a lot of people in our business are afraid of losing. I do think of losing relevance or. What happens when nobody's talking about me anymore? And what happens when they stop calling? And I just think that drives fear in a lot of people. You're saying for you personally. Yeah, but I mean, we all know we, you can game the system. You and you and I could get on Twitter right now and say, you know. LeBron James is. Tom, Tom Brady versus LeBron James reminds I mean, right. we, we all know how to, uh, you know, you, you, you want retweets. You sort of know what 10 athletes and 10 code words you can use. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I also, I mean, the, honestly, like the. Uh, how you are with this like <laughs> fame and notoriety I mean it's it's to me it's just bullshit it, bullshit yeah yes. exactly um, it's I, so it's fleeting not my, uh, it's so fleeting no I don't know it's just never my never the goal to get recognized in an airport okay but wait let me ask you a question for real I've never asked you this in the, in the truest sense um, 
So you, you're a correspondent for 60 Minutes, which is probably the biggest, the most high profile job you've had as far as being recognized. And Bob Lee, who we both know, the wonderful ESPN, ex former ESPN guy, used to call, he would say to me, uh, red light fever. He said to me, red light fever. People get sucked in by red light fever. I know you haven't. I know it doesn't do it for you at all. Do you get it? Like, do you get someone sees you in a restaurant and is like, oh my God, I love you working 60 Minutes. Like, is there a little bit of sugar rush to that? Or no, is that just bullshit? If I were 30, oh, yeah. 100%. Right. If I were 40, yeah. I don't know at, at this at this point. Yeah. I mean, I also say like, what what do they they notice you and sort of what's what's the second line, what's the second act, right? I respect your work or I love oh. the piece you did on X. All right, well that's that's flattering. That's nice. If it's right. just I recognize you, what, what do you get out of that? Right. Where, where's the satisfaction there? Um, that's a good point. I don't know. You know what's funny is like, um, I probably get recognized as much for Tennis Channel as for uh, for sixty minutes, but I also think that's because. Um, you know, it's live TV versus segments and it's 12 or 14 times a year versus much longer stretches. But um, I don't know. I mean, if the first time someone says, hey, aren't you Jeff Perlman? Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, right. And then you say, well, wait a second. Like, that, that, gets, that gets me down. I think it's diminishing return fast for getting recognized. Yeah. The thing that's funny is um, my parents still like, if they see like you on TV, oh, we saw John on TV or Sharon Epperson. Oh my God, we saw Sharon Epperson on TV. Mom, how many of my books have you read? Well, I skimmed your watch. <laughs> I'm not really a baseball fan. TV is just as a currency of like parent. Is your mom not good? I know, but how, I mean, when someone, oh, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Uh, Nussbaum said they saw you on TV. All right. But if someone said, oh, they read your book and they really liked what you had to say about XYZ, that's, that's gratifying, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I will say the one thing that has changed drastically in my life I remember when I was coming up in baseball and I was covering baseball and you'd write a story for SI about like the Braves rotation and the SI communications department would call you and say, all right, we have five radio requests. All right, let's do them all. I'm so excited. I can't believe it. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, and I would call like if I have friends in that town, I'd be like, just so you know, I'm going to be on the radio. Now it's like, eh, eh, I don't, I mean. I, you know, I, I think sports radio probably is in a not dissimilar position to magazines and newspapers I'm guessing but no exactly. is it I don't it even all, know it all uh, no I don't know it's all diminishing returns right I mean I, I was cleaning up junk yeah. and you keep the clips when you're in the Minnesota Star Tribune you know oh right John Wertheim wrote that Wally Serbiak needs and you're now now it's all it's all fleeting why did I keep this but yeah exactly the other thing is like if you really want to like people say I've had people ask me you probably have to like what do you want your legacy to be? And I'm always like... You know what? I've never gotten asked that. Have you never? Legacy? Yeah. No. Oh, I actually have. Oh, man. What do you want your legacy as a writer to be? And I'm always like, I couldn't tell you one sports writer from the 1950 New York Times. My legacy is zero. My legacy is zero. No one is going to remember me. legacy question. It doesn't um, matter. It's so insignificant. Like, who, what? No, you want to you like what you do and... Uh, hope your kids turn out okay. Yeah, hope your kids turn out okay and... Um, food on the table. And, exactly. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son Emmett, who started working today as a CIT at a local summer camp. So Emmett, how's that going? It's okay. Why just okay? Well, it's a good amount of work, and I get paid nothing, and the bosses are sort of critical, and I'm not even sure what I get out of it. Emmett, seriously, 
This is the point in the ad where you're supposed to say this podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You've done this a million times. What the hell is wrong with you? Wait, wait, what were you talking about? My unpaid, unsatisfying job. Oh, right. All right, so you have a new book out called Glory Days, and it's very funny because um, it's Glory Days, the summer of 1984, and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. Uh, I like how, I just want to say, here's how... (laughs) I like this. You have four blurbs on the back of the book. <laughs> Ralph Macchio, named by himself. Bob Costas, named by himself. Chris Everett, named by herself. And Jeff Pearl, an author of Three Ring Circus. So just, Three Ring Circus, see? <laughs> I like how I, well, you don't have to say what anyone else has done. but Ralph def- Macchio has been in a series of movies, uh, most right. notably Karate Kid. Bob Costas, uh, steam television personality, now mostly with MLB Network. And uh, Chris Everett, 18-time major singles champion, tennis hall of famer. Wait, I'm gonna I feel ask you, better now? Yeah, I feel better, actually. Um, you write about the Karate Kid, and I'm actually fascinated about Ralph Macchio. I don't know why this is fascinating. How'd you, how'd you build a relationship with Ralph Macchio? Oh, man, it's a crazy story. We, we have a mutual friend who basically said, Ralph loves sports. He might want to do something for Sports Illustrated. This was years ago. Okay. I don't know, eight years ago. And uh, I think we corresponded over email hey i'm gonna be in new york can i come see the si offices which of course you realize is always like there's a copy machine that's you know it's not not exactly uh right. what you might machine. expect um yeah um he wrote a piece for si and we stayed in touch and he's he's great i mean he's you talk about one of what do we always say you saw this was your expression i've My stolen kind of guy you always say one of us yeah one, one, of, of, us. one of us exactly um lives on long island and Likes the Mets and he's great. So um, he was he was very helpful in the Karate Kid chapter. He's great. I mean, it's, it's you, you can't not like him. Okay, but why this is going to sound dumb? Like you you write a book about 1984, and when I think of 84, there's specific events I think of. I think of Jordan number one. I probably think of Gretzky number two. I think you know blah blah blah. Bird magic at that point in occur. What would make make you even think of writing about the Karate Kid? Like why the Karate Kid of all the sort of random? Well, you know the story about this book. This was like my USFL book, right? Where you're just like, God damn it, I want to write this book. I'm not looking to sell a million copies. But if someone else did it, you'd be pissed off, which is a great barometer for whether you should write a book or not, right? Yeah. If someone else did, oh, I did the USFL, and it's great. I wrote about Herschel Walker and Steve Young. You'd be like, God damn it, that was that was what this was. But um, Wait, how many years did you have this in your head? So I did a story on Jordan coming to my town. Yeah, in, which in I want to ask you about. Right, right. And uh, I wrote about it for us. Do you ever work with Ted Keith? Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I wrote about it for SI, and people said, "Oh, you should write a book on that, like McCallum's Dream Team book." And I'm like, "No, Jack wrote, Jack wrote the book, and he had Bird Magic, Jordan, Pippin, David Robinson, Stockton Malone. I've got Jordan's great, but then it's right, you know, Le- Leon Wood and uh, and love Leon Wood, Wayman Tisdale, um, college Leon Wood, Fuller, Cal yeah. State Fuller, yeah." Um, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. So, um, anyway, I, I, I was like, there's, there's not a book in the 1984 Olympic team. And it would have been so derivative to Jack's. But then I was like, you know, a lot of shit happened that summer. And then you sort of put it together and you said, you know what? You could actually do a really fun book. And it was, you know, David Stern becomes commissioner and it's, it's Bird and Magic and Gretzky finally won the Stanley Cup and Trump and Olympics and, you know, the WrestleMania. The, you remember... Uh, Brawl to end it all, Captain Lou Albano and eighty four wasn't the year of the camel clutch. When, I think that was a year after. Yeah, um, I think that was eighty right. Iron Cheek. Iron Cheek. Paul Hogan, Madison Square Garden. I think that was a year after. But um, 
No, then I was like, God, a lot happened in that summer. Right. And there was sort of a technology and media and pop culture element and Prince and Springsteen. I said, you know what? You could really put this together and do a fun book on this crazy American summer that didn't... You know how some summers seem crazy at the time? Yeah. So 94, right? They did that, that 30 for 30, and it's Knicks and Rangers and OJ, OJ. And there was a Woodstock 25, and like at the time, it seemed like, yeah, this is kind of a lot, lot's going on this summer. 84, I think, was just normal, you know, I was in 82. We were in middle school, normal American summer, but you look back and you say, oh my God, like every trend in sports right now, every uh, live issue has some roots in 1984. And, and you know, and Jordan... Jordan's Jordan. This was the summer Jordan went from the schlubby college kid who didn't even want to go pro. The Dean Smith forced him to uh, go to the NBA, and by the end, he's tooling around Chicago with a gold medal and millions of dollars in his own signature shoe. Wait, give me the... um, Because I actually remember you telling me years ago. Bloomington, Indiana, you're a kid. The Olympic team, Olympic basketball team. Like... There's so much about that story I love. Bob Knight is the Olympic coach, who's, you know, peak of his powers, this giant asshole, but he's Bob Knight and it's the 80s. And so everyone comes to him to try out for the team. So everyone comes to, to my hometown, and it's Jordan and Ewing and Barkley and Malone and Stockton. Just offered. They all, uh, Steve, well, well they, if you, the unspoken rule is if you're the coach you can have one of your guys on it so Steve Alford was going to make that team if he you know shoot right. whatever if he shot granny shot free throws and uh, you know didn't move on defense he was still going to make the team but um, they all fly into the Indianapolis airport Joe Klein great Arkansas uh, yeah but I'll right. I think you I think you in my book. up yeah I think you gave oh, did I give you his number yeah yeah he runs a wings he was place a great uh but he's a great source yeah. and he's like you know you show up to the Indianapolis airport and they're like Everyone's got a duffel bag and they're throwing it into a van and it's Patrick Ewing in the front seat and Charles Barkley in the middle and Michael Jordan behind you. They come to my hometown. Hardly anyone knows this thing's even going on. It's not like the world stopped. All the players are staying at the Indiana Student Union. That's amazing. They're bored out of their mind. So you'd go, you'd show up and you know, play pool with Chris Mullen or you play video games with Chuck Person. It's a bunch of kids at a different college. There are no agents. There are no, no zero security. I mean, these guys would practice at Assembly Hall and they wouldn't even lock the door. You'd be bored after school. You'd ride your bike and you'd go watch Michael Jordan practice. And the students leave, you know, college town. Students go away for the summer, so a quiet town gets even quieter. And Jordan and Barkley ended up getting cut. It was a great culture class. Jeff Turner. Bar- well, Barkley, yeah, Jeff Turner of, uh, of Vanderbilt makes <laughs> the team. But uh, Barkley, the only reason Barkley was there is because he wanted to improve his draft stock. And everybody says Barkley crushed it. They said Barkley was the best player, on better than Jordan, best player at the trials was Charles Barkley. But he didn't want to, he didn't care about making the team. He hated Bob Knight. He wanted to raise his draft stock. He kept putting on weight. You know, Knight would show up 10 minutes late and... Barkley would say, come on, old man, why'd your watch stop? And everybody would giggle, and Knight had never been... Talked to that way. Right. The best line Knight had was, uh, there's, there's only one general in this army, fat boy, and that's me. <laughs> that's what he said to Barkley. There's a great culture clash with Knight and Barkley. Yeah, it's amazing. Because um, Barkley didn't give a shit. He's like, I don't care. I'm not getting paid for this. Who's this guy yelling at me? And right. Knight had never had its authority challenged. So uh, Barkley's the best player, but they cut him. Barkley... Goes home. He doesn't care. But Jordan, Jordan and Knight actually got along really well because yeah. they both have that same gene. 
And this team practiced for the Olympics in my hometown all summer. And you'd see these guys around town and Patrick Ewing would go to the Karate Kid and Jordan, I distinctly remember this, Jordan losing at putt-putt. I don't even think he knew the people he was playing with. And then he challenged him to a new game because he was pissed off he lost at putt-putt. He's literally like the fourth guy. Like, hey, you guys need a fourth? And he plays mini golf and demands a rematch because he didn't win at uh, the Bloomington putt-putt. I can't remember. I think I did a radio show in Indiana. People called in and said, I remember a bunch of those guys showed up at our prom. He's bored in the middle of Indiana. There's some prom in Bloomington. So Michael Jordan shows up at the Edgewood High School prom just because there's nothing else to do. Um, Didn't you you have a scrapbook? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All these... uh, Autographs, right? Yeah, they all know we enjoyed meeting you so much. It it wasn't just like, you know, this was... uh, I'm trying to think who... Johnny Dawkins. And they... Yeah, yeah, this all... um, I'm trying to remember who else was on that... uh, just in the tryout. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. Right. I mean the the guys that got cut were Stockton Stockton I don't think made the team. No. No, Stockton didn't make the team. Carl Malone didn't make the team. Dumars didn't make the team. Terry Porter didn't make the team. Barkley didn't make the team. But you could you could have an NBA all star team of guys that were cut. But they were all kind of hanging in my hometown for a summer. Was I naive at age twelve thinking that Steve Alford was a really good player and like totally belonged to that team and was awesome? Like was that just me being a fool? It was dumb, but he had knocked down open jumpers. There's one thing Steve Offer could do is knock down a jump shot. So Jordan would draw the defense. He'd kick to the, you know, six foot one shooter from Indiana, and uh, he'd get his 13 points every game. But um, yeah, I mean, the only thing I was thinking about this when I read when I wrote the book is part of this is oh, sports are quaint, and it wasn't big time, and there wasn't media, and there wasn't ESPN, and there wasn't this you know the pressures and social media, but also you realize how little power the athletes had. Right. So Michael Jordan's, David Stern's a new commissioner, and David Stern has this great idea where the draft really ought to be a thing. It should just be a bunch of guys in a conference room. We could probably get people really interested in this next generation of players. And uh, he wants Jordan to go. And Bob Knight says, fuck, no, we're not going to have Jordan get his ass kissed in New York. He's on my team. So Michael Jordan has no recourse. He doesn't go because Bob Knight doesn't want him to go. Crazy. So Michael Jordan doesn't go to his own draft. George Raveling was the assistant coach, takes Jordan out to lunch to celebrate, and they get McDonald's, and they go back to practice. And it's, oh, this fun story, and oh, it's the good old days, and it's so pure. But you also realize, like, Michael Jordan didn't go to the his own draft because Bob Knight, the coach of the Olympics, who wasn't paying him a dime, didn't allow him to go. So uh, some of this is some kind of quaint sports stories. I mean, the other one I, I tell all the time is when the, you ever know the story? Was this in your book? When the Lakers and Celtics, Game 7, yeah. 1984. First time Magic and Bird meet in the finals. And for Game 7, Pat Riley wants them to get back to Boston with maximum rest. So they take a red eye. And, you know, it's all commercial. Nobody, no team flies private anymore yeah. uh, by then. But And it's seniority. So Kareem got business, but Magic probably had coach. And the red eye, Pat Riley booked him on wasn't direct. They changed in Dulles. That's awesome. So imagine it's it's uh, you know it's it's six a.m. and you're walking through Dulles and you're like, there's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson. Didn't they just have a game last night? And aren't they supposed to play in Boston tomorrow night? So most important game of the season, honestly, probably one of the most important games in NBA history. And the Lakers got to the Boston Garden first changing plays in Washington, D.C. That's awesome. It's a good story, right? That would not happen. No, but again, it's the same thing. It's like, so it's cute and it's quaint and oh, back then and the players were so, you know what? Like, why 
why was Magic Johnson flying in row 23 on a right. red eye through Dulles? So part of this is about, uh, and I, I give Jordan a lot of credit for this, part of this is about players recognizing their value, and I think a lot of that started to happen in the summer of 84, because one of the reasons sports were small, yeah, you know, whatever, there wasn't ESPN and there wasn't, but also these players didn't understand their leverage. Right. Uh, it's funny how, like, or, casual fans are like, ah, the good old days. And it's easy to get caught in that trap. And then you're like, maybe they weren't so, like, they were great as far as for us, for the fans. Right, and, right. And they were like, oh, I remember when, when athletes appreciated blah, 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 blah. And it's like, actually, they were being treated like total dogs. You're like, yeah, <laughs> some of these guys had to have other jobs in the off season. That, right. And you're like, that should not have been. No, that's, that, that's not a uh, That's not a virtue that Tom Seaver sold you a pair of shoes because he had to work in the mall when uh, the Cincinnati Reds season was over. Right. You have this with your USFL book where it's, just fun to do. Oh yeah, and you weren't, you know, whatever. You're you're fortunate enough to be at a place where you don't need to sell a million copies, and you don't need just a book kind of passion project before you do the action film. I'll say this: the least enjoyable book I wrote was a book about the Shaq Kobe Lakers because I don't have nostalgia for it, and there's nothing more fun. Nostalgia is just no, the best. Like a drug. It is. It's the best. Like working on a Bo Jackson book now, it's all right. about nostalgia. Nostalgia is just the best freaking thing in the world. The one thing about this book, and I, but I think you have this too, right? It's far enough away. No one says like, "Who's Bo Jackson?" Or, you know, right? Who's Who's Deion Sanders? I don't. Know, I don't know. When nostalgia but, moves, nostalgia moves as we age. Nostalgia moves with us. So like, people, I get emails sometimes. Someone will be like, "You should do a book about Bob Gibson and the so and so Cardinals," and I'm yeah, like, "It's too late." Relevance, yeah. It's just Pass. nostalgia yeah, moves. Exactly. Even like. I don't think the 70s anymore. So you should do right. a book about the 78 Yankees. I'm like, I think it's too late. But the right. 80s and the 90s now. No, now you do. Uh, yeah, I was going to say the next. But um, yeah, you, nostalgia needs to thicken, right? Yes. So you can't do something on, I don't know, what's what's something from five years ago? You can, It's you too could early. Golden State Warriors, right? Too it's early. Like, all these guys are still in the league and they're still in, you know, Steve Kerr's not going to want to say anything right. pejorative about Clay Thompson. You know, you're not going to have. So. Bo Jackson's great like that, right? Where, He's just yeah, like this. Everyone knows just Bo like Jackson, this. but it's far enough away that people can speak freely. Right. And I, I didn't realize that going in, but that was like, it really helped that uh, you'd, get, you'd get David Stern and basically, you know, no one says, who, who's Michael Jordan? Who's Magic Johnson? Who are these guys you're talking right. about? But it's far enough away that he can talk pretty freely and not worry that I'm going to piss someone off and have to run into him or cover my tracks. You got David Stern. He was great. He was fantastic. How long before his death did you talk to him? I talked multiple times. He's a, he's a huge tennis fan, so that was a bonus. But uh, like, how'd you get him great. to talk? He was great. I mean, I, you know, this, I don't name drop. I whatever. I've, I've interviewed. You know, we, we know each other. Right. I've interviewed him, and he's a big tennis fan. And he's he said, "What's this book about?" And uh, he kind of made me. Uh, it was kind of a little meta David Stern moment where I had to like. You know, it was like I worked for him. I had to like prove it. I said, "Well, this happened." He's like, ah, "I guess you're right." Yeah, I never thought of it that way. I mean, he but at first he was like, "I don't get it. Why would you ever write a book about that?" And then he kind of bought the premise, and then he was fantastic. Does he get it? He, Is he like was he one of those guys who totally hundred yeah. percent? Yeah. I mean, first of all, he was. I mean, he's genius. I mean, just he yeah. knew his quotes from. Uh, I'll tell you the Trump story later, but his quotes from 1984. You know. There's a world of cable TV where we won't be relying on the three main networks. And these new cable networks are going to be a great source of revenue for us. Or, right. You know, we think the NBA can travel beyond the borders of the United States. And we're thinking about even putting teams in foreign countries. I mean, he was so far ahead of the game. Right. 
Um, but he was great on it. You know, he, he kept an office off Columbus Circle that I, I think the NBA paid for. It. I think it was part of his severance. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, he wasn't twiddling his thumbs, but he wasn't running around like he did when he was commissioner. And he was fantastic. He was probably the best person I interviewed for this. I know you didn't get Jordan. How much of an effort do you put into trying to get him? We all have guys yeah, we don't get. Yeah, no, Not that much. No. I mean, I, I mean, Jordan was... You, you, you hear the stories yeah. about how hard it is to get Jordan. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you heard... Uh, did you hear this, the Dan Patrick story? That ESPN was naming him like the number one oh, athlete. Yeah. And finally, like uh, at the last minute, he agreed to uh, sit for this. Um, to, for the Dan Patrick thing. Right. So I, I, I knew it was a long shot. I did my due diligence. But um, yeah, Jordan... Jordan didn't play along. Give me your 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 big five. Big five interviews you got for this one. Stern's got to be one of them, right? Stern, in terms of content or just random? Your favorite. Tyson was great. Ralph, I mean, Ralph Macchio is like the best. fantastic. Okay. Um, who else? Oh, Mark, Martina Navratilova was good. But you know how this is when you do books. Sometimes it's, it's the Joe Klein types. You know, sometimes yeah. it's the, it's the um, what's what's a good example for this? No, I don't know. Costas was great, but um, sometimes it's just random figures. I mean, J- Joe Klein had more. So Joe Klein, I just want to say, was a basketball player at yeah, University right. of Arkansas, on the Olympic team. Right. Did not have, you know, had a pro career. Good pro career. Good played pro ten career. years, probably. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, he did not have a Michael Jordan Barkley level career, but he had great recollections. And I think also making the nineteen eighty four Olympic team huge deal to Joe Klein. Right. If you'd gotten Jordan, I'm sure he would have had some stories and he would have had some recollections, but this was not one of the, like, defining moments necessarily of his life. Um, but that's that's true of all these books, right? And true of stories we do too, right? Yeah. But sometimes it's, uh, it's the utility infielder that makes the story when, when Barry Bonds doesn't Definitely. give you the time. I think Joe Klein is a more important interview than Michael Jordan would have been. I do. Um, I really mean that. Yeah, I mean, the Jordan's at a point where anything he says makes news, and yeah. you, you would have had three anecdotes from Jordan, and they would have counted it. But um, no, exactly. I mean, these uh, it's, it's like a team, right? These utility guys have a lot of utility in uh, what we do as well. Is it weird writing a book where it's like, um, is it weird putting together a book? Like, all right, I do Bo Jackson. Right. It's a very natural progression. He grows up in Alabama, he goes to Auburn, then he goes to, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. There's, this is a weird, like, sort of little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. Do you, you told me actually early on after you wrote your first book, I've used this advice many times. You said, view every every chapter as a long Sports Illustrated feature. That's what you actually said to me. I don't remember yeah, saying Yeah, there's a little bit, uh, yeah. Do the chapters, when you write about a million different things going on that are kind of connected by year, but not necessarily connected by subject, does there need to be a flow to the book or is it okay to go chapter pause, chapter, pause, chapter, pause. I mean, if I had to write this again, do you do this when you write your books? And like, if I had to do this book again, I would have had more connective oh, tissue. And some of, of these are too, some of these chapters I think are too standalone. Like what? No, I mean, you know, there's a chapter on, you gotta mention Gretzky, right? And oh. here's this phenom and he finally wins the Stanley Cup, but I don't know if that fits into a greater mosaic of... Right. Um, but wait, interesting point here. A lot of time that shit is forced. A lot of times it's like, Okay, an editor will say to you, the thing is... You need a binding binding element. We need a binding element. Or what is the overarching... Right. That's the thing. What is the overarching? And the truth of the matter is the reader doesn't give a shit about the overarching. And and it's usually contrived anyhow. Right. 
you know? Um, no, I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a balance. You don't want to force it. I do think um, some of these were probably too much of standalones. But you told me this, too. You, you said hone in on one topic, yeah. which is which I think is good advice, too. You know, do Favre. And Green Bay fans will read it. It'll sell 30,000 copies in Green Bay alone, in Wisconsin alone, and you'll market it in... Where's where he from? Kiln, Mississippi? Yeah, the Kiln, Mississippi. The Kiln? That's, it goes, no, the Kiln. It's spelled K-I-O-N, but it's called, they say the Kiln. The Kiln, yeah. Mississippi. Yeah. Um, I know yeah, too I much. Know that. Yeah. But uh, no, I mean, this is sprawling. So it's, I mean, you know, you can't just, it's, it's, I think it's harder to sell and harder to market when it's all over the place. You can't just tap into a fan base or tap into one athlete. Um, but I also didn't know what the, binding element was I mean I hoped I'd find it and I think I kind of sort of did but isn't 84 the binding element just the, I, mean, I think uh, it's cable oh right right the rise of cable TV that summer but right. I didn't know that going in um, yeah I don't know this this was a fun I'm telling you it's just your USFL book right same thing or you right. just you do it for the joy of it it's a fun book to do exactly do you um, <laughs> do you hate promoting a book hate hate worst part of the process alright tell me why um, where to where to begin? It's first of all, I, I just hate the self promotion. Yeah, I hate the calling in of favors. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'd rather pe- people want to read the book. Great, I'd rather they read it than me talk about it. I I find I don't know. You you've really mastered this. I don't I don't love it, but I find the challenge interesting. I will say, but I hate oh, being I a whore. I mean, they're also. I mean, the other thing too is, I mean, the dirty secret is you write these books, and you just got to move on to the next thing. Yeah. And people are like, they're asking me about Russian gymnasts and shit. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, That's a good example. Mary, Mary yeah. Lou Retton, I'm like, I don't know. Right. I'm probably, uh-huh. I don't even know if I would have known it. But, I mean, I, this book was done. Right. Even COVID notwithstanding, this book was done like 12. So, so you're asked, you're, you're on moving on to the next stuff and you're thinking about other projects and suddenly you have to revisit this thing. And, it's like Margot Robbie promoting Suicide Squad a year and a half after yeah, exactly, she's done exactly, shooting. Right, right. Remember yeah. that scene when you and you're like, oh, I, I, yeah. I guess I do. Um, I don't know. I just, the, uh, the the calling in of favors, and you also, re- I mean, should we talk about this or no? Yeah. Love oh, you topic. realize these, um, the, you know, these, these are not always such easy times for publishing and, and marketing budgets get slashed. And I think people sort of assume, you know, you're, you're in this world. Can't, can't you call Bill Simmons? Right. Right. Um, and you sort of, well, it doesn't really work that way. No. Um, and you have friends like Jeff Perlman. No, whatever. I mean, I felt like, well, I can call call up Deitch and say I have a book coming out. But, you know, do, do I want to really I know. cold call Bill Simmons and say I have a book coming out? Will you put me on your podcast? It's so awkward. Not really. It's so ridiculously awkward. And also, like, you're asking a favor trying to make it not sound like you're asking for the yeah, favor exactly. but you're asking for the favor and they know you're asking for the favor I know, and, and you're so vulnerable and you feel like a goober or else do you what, what do you do or else you just like shit on the process right and you say this is the worst part of it but uh, I think that's I'm, how you gotta I'm do it I'm holding my nose and I'm, I've gotta whore myself and I also think, I think quite reasonably the publisher says well you know we're, we're giving Jeff Perlman this advance and one of the reasons he's a great writer and has a track record but we also assume he's going to tap into this network of his. One of the reasons you and I are getting paid to write books is there's an assumption that we'll get on Jim Rome and we'll get on Dan Patrick and we'll do our lifting. Um, So I feel a little bit of an obligation, right? I mean, I don't have to take months out of my life to do every TV show, but I think you got to give them an honest effort, right? I mean, I think one of the reasons you and I are getting 
book advances is because there's an assumption that we're going to be able to move a few copies by tapping into our contacts, right? It is that's insane. How, how no, I, I agree 100%. I think it's insane. And this doesn't just go for um, your publisher, Holden Mifflin, who is also my publisher. Like, it doesn't just go for that. It is insane the amount of money. Like, printing a book costs a lot of money. Printing 30,000 books costs a lot of money. They pay us good money to write them. And they put so little money into PR. Like, all the, I'm not just talking about, I'm talking about the business. They put so little, but then on the other hand, I don't really know what you do. Like, these days it's not, when we started writing books, it was how many articles can you get written about your book and can right. you get on Sports Talk oh. Radio? You know, St. Louis Post-Dispatch is going to review your book. Right. And, or else, yeah, exactly. Where we got you on Mike and the Mad Dog. Right. That doesn't really... Mike and the Mad Dog, or being on like a, radio, a big New York City radio show, probably okay. But getting written yeah, about right, in a local right. newspaper... Right. Um, I don't know. No, but I don't know what the answer. Do you put it in, you know, do you put it in digital marketing? Do you buy Facebook ads? I, don't I think know. my wife came up with the best thing so far. What's that? And it's funny, like, um, so years ago, I've said this in my podcast before, Sports Illustrated put my Walter Payton book on the cover. Right. Excellent. And I was thrilled. Right. Nowadays, if you said to me, I say this with no disrespect to SI, if you said to me, you can be on the cover of SI your book or Justin Bieber uh, will do post a photo of him yeah. reading your book on Instagram, what are you going with? You yeah, pick exactly. one. You're going with Bieber. What my wife started doing when she wrote her book, Ignore It, which is a very good parenting book, she sent the book to a bunch of social media influencers with like a gift, like a t-shirt or a hat or whatever it was, I remember, bookmark. And she had like, Kristen Bell, excuse me, post it. She got on the Today Show, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, I just think it's, a, it's an age of social media influencers now, more than can you get an SI, can you get in the New York Times, can you get in the Washington Post? But I it don't, um... Yeah, I mean, I no, I mean, the, the, I would say, a, I don't know, you're you're like me, right? Don't you like the process? I of do. Writing? I mean, I hate the selling. I hate the. the I, mean, I like it, hate it, love hate. With, hate. I'm talking about the. I'm talking about the writing. No, I, I love the, hate. No, but I'm saying like the writing process is great. I feel like there's is it great? actually a. Oh, Wait, is it great? Do you I feel that way? It. I love it. You do. Yeah. Tell me why. It drives me freaking. You've done your reporting. You do your thing. It's totally up to you. That's true. You, they leave you, you go alone. Go to your coffee shop. They leave. I mean, it's basically like come, come back when you have a manuscript. And you go to your coffee shop, you write your thousand words, you can do it on a plane. It's, it's kind of your baby and you're not, there's, there's a deadline, but it's only, there's one deadline, right? Do you print everything out? Do you print your notes out? Um, less, less so. There is an irony that you're like, I'm doing all this on digital recording. I'm having, you know, I'm tra transcribing it, I'm emailing, blah, 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 and I haven't printed out a piece of paper, but now I'm expecting to, people to buy a print product I know. when Super for, for the whole process I have not used a lot of paper um, so you're not tortured when you're no, writing I was, gonna, I was gonna say like I, I, I don't know how you are with this like I still like writing these things but yeah. also um, I, I feel like there's actually a market for books people say like oh you know I'm freelancing I'm trying to I've been come up with a book idea people are buying books I don't feel like this this is a dying industry and I feel like I agree and I don't know if it was COVID I feel like the industry got a nice little sort of uh I think it's a nice little surge right now. Yeah, 100%. Uh, people, what, what's your next book about? We're looking for a book about X. Does that interest you? I feel like the book market is actually kind of active, but I think you're right. I think figuring out how to sell these things is a mystery that I never will understand. It's interesting. Um, I want to get a copy to Kristen Bell. That's, uh, that's the yeah, advice I've heard. Uh, <laughs> but um, She's, you know... 
I met her at your wedding, so she's a, you know, she knows what she's doing. Um, wait, I'm actually surprised. Like, I, um, you don't find the writing torture. I'm not saying, I don't find writing torturous generally. I do find, like, so I think everything I write sucks. Right. Every time I write it, I'm like, well, that sucks. That's a waste. Also, like, the reporting. I'm like, I always feel like there's another person to call. Uh, another person to call. Another person. Like, I've been talking a lot. We both know and like very much Howard Bryant. And Howard Bryant has a book about Ricky yeah, Henderson. Right? Yeah, yeah. He's a which is great. And the guy just is freaking dogged. And I'm friends with the guy, Jonathan Ike. Do you know Jonathan Ike, personally? Great guy. Wrote this Ali book. He's really good. And there's always, like, they're always talking to more and more and more and more people. And I find that, like... You always say that. There's always one more call you can make. I know. I'm, a, I'm, I'm haunted by that. Do you not feel that way? I think at some point you got to... Uh, right. You know, you sort of... You have a good sense of when, when, when you have it. Um, no, I mean, you're, you're, if you're finite, if you, if you had infinite amount of, uh, time, you'd call all 12 members of the team, but yeah. sometimes you only can get five, call, call the starting five. But, um, don't you feel like at this point you, you kind of know you can deliver one of these, you kind of know the pacing, you know, you knock off your thousand words, you knock off your 2000 words. You were the one who told me that thousand words a day. Thousand words a day. Yeah. Is that what you, you told me that? That was you. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I've given you credit. Um, and then if you don't do a thousand, you just make sure the next day you do two thousand. Yeah, exactly. Or else uh, you you make the quotes extra long. Oh um, no, my favorite. <laughs> I think of this a lot because you told me a thousand words a day. I love when you're taking like maybe a three hundred word passage from a book and you're attributing the book, you know. But it's like as you know, Dave Anderson wrote in the New York Times in nineteen eighty six, and that's like three hundred words from Dave Anderson. There you go. You're like Thanks. only seven hundred. Yeah, you only have seven hundred more to go. I also, uh, you know, what else I did? I would say, uh, if you figure, someone I can't remember who taught me this. This may have been Steve Russian, or maybe I'm misattributing this, but they, they would give whatever they're getting. So you do a magazine story; it's a dollar word, and you give yourself a treat of one percent. So if you have a 1,500-word story and they're paying you a dollar word, yeah. $15, you get a Frappuccino and a Subway sub. So at the end of the day, um, you know, whatever, you treat yourself to a nice dinner. But um, That's pretty good. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, uh, don't you feel a little like it's writing these things is still still not the word, you know. Look, That's look at great. us. We're, neither of us are wearing socks. My gauge. Are you, yeah. are you wearing socks right now? I always say that too. Yeah. So, no, it's uh, great. We've been, wait, I'm going to say something. I'm being serious about this. Like, basically, I feel like we came up together at SI. We arrived together at SI. I think we've had fairly similar sensibilities through the years. We married best friends. That's true. Um, I feel like we're really lucky. Like, I, totally. I just, like, it's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous. When you say overall, it's ridiculous. Like, we have char- we have had charm journalistic experiences. Um, no, you disagree with that? No, I think I think you're right. I mean, we we all we all bitch and we're all worried about the profession and we're all worried about media and it's this crazy wild west and every every tortured analogy. Yeah. Is, that, is that irony ever struck you? By the way, yes. We're all talking about media and everyone's like, it's uh, you know, it's a sinking ship. It's the wild west. It's like <laughs> the sloppiest metaphors to describe with you. But um, <laughs> but uh, no, I don't know. Can you imagine having a normal job? Can you imagine like? Wearing a tie and going to uh, no. the, the, the Hibbings account, and we're going to have our quarterly, you know, financial reviews, and I don't know. Well, you, did you almost become an attorney? Were you ever, you have a law degree. Did you ever? I worked in a firm one summer. I looked at my watch every 30 seconds and said, I got to figure out plan B, because I can't do this for the next Why'd you get a law degree? Years. 
Oh man, um, I don't know. So I just did a curveball. Path, path of uh, path of least resistance. That's that's what you did when you weren't entirely sure what you wanted to do. Um, like were your parents like go to law school? Go to law yeah, school. Yeah, I mean honestly, my my first job out of college was Rip City Magazine, which yeah. was fantastic. It was a great years of my life. How much did you make? Do you remember? But uh, yeah, I made uh, eleven fifty an hour. <laughs> My daughter makes more than you did. It was the nineties. Um it was fantastic. Did I pay four hundred dollars a month in rent? Did I what did I do? I like play, played pool and ate burritos and never worried about money. But um uh what was I gonna say? No, I don't know. But, but then you I mean I was gonna be a Rip City magazine right. writer for the next forty years. So um so I took a gap year to live in Portland. All time, you know, one of the great great year, but then I went to law school. And are you um, in law school thinking, I don't want to do this? Yeah. How many no, years? No, no, no. Law school is great. It is. The problem, I mean, to me, as long as it's between us, yeah. the problem to me is being a lawyer. Yeah. I thought law school was fun. Law school is fantastic. Right. Being a lawyer in a big firm, though, is that's. I know very that's few a people. Rough way to make a living. You probably know this too. I know a ton of people. They go through one year of law school. They start thinking, I don't know if I really want to do this. They're two years in, and now they're whatever, 120000 in the hole. And they're like, well, now i got to finish the third year because I owe all this money anyway, and now I guess i got to be a lawyer. Then they wind up being a lawyer. I don't have that many happy lawyers. No, or else they're doing something creative and enterprising. But we're working, I mean, I worked in a law firm, and you know, I had very expensive lunches, and I was paid pretty well, and I've never been more miserable don't, job. Wait, don't you think you learned along the way in this? Nothing is more overrated than having a, a great lunch with people you don't want to be with. <laughs> hey, you're right. Right? It's only food. Um, <laughs> oh, we're going to per se. You know, Grant, Grant and I used to eat lunch every day. And we would get these like doughy empanadas from like a truck. And I'm thinking the summer before this, I was like, you know, eating lobster tail. Right. But you're, no, you're right. Exactly. Uh, I'd, I'd rather be eating empanadas with Grant. But um, so no, the summer after my second year, when all my classmates were working in these fancy firms and they're going to Yankees games and oh, we're having a Harbor cruise and there are these summer associates where they wine you and dine you. I was a uh, intern at SI. That's awesome. Um, that worked out. That worked well. It didn't kept kept me from being a lawyer, so that's that's probably a plus. Let me ask you a final question. Every now and then, someone will be like to me, they'll be like, oh, "How do you do so much?" Or how do you? And I'm always like, Psh, "I know, I know someone who works a lot harder than I do." Like, being serious about this, you do tennis, you do SI, you do sixty minutes, you write, you write oh, books. Stop. How do you? No, I'm being sincere. I knew you were going to say that. How do you do all this stuff? Well, I'm being serious about that. Like you, I just feel like you're always, you have to be the busiest person in this profession. Or am I oh, overstating that? Do you feel like I'm overstating that? Overstating it. I don't know. Really? Watch my TV shows and uh, no, I isn't part of it. Like I don't know. It's like saying uh, you played sixteen, you played eighteen holes of golf, and then the next day you played thirty six. And right. thinking, I don't know. I'm not. It's not torture. I'm not not uh, not not working the salt mines. What are you doing? You're uh, you're doing a little writing. You're doing a little traveling, and you talking about tennis uh, with people you like. Right. Um, That's a good point. You enjoy it. Yeah, you enjoy it, exactly. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't... That's fair. I, I, I get my seven hours of sleep. Wait, I've never asked you this question before. Final, final question. What's your best confrontation ever with the subject? I love it when you ask those, and I never shit. Um, I had a good one with Andy Roddick. 
Oh. I have to say? Yeah, go ahead. No, I wrote something about Andy Roddick. He said, can I talk to you? I said, oh, yeah, whatever. So I went and uh, saw him at a tournament in Miami, and he screamed at me to the point that, like, the ATP guys were worried we were getting in a fight. I, I, you know, I yelled back at him a little. Look, I'm not your publicist. I got to call him as I see him. And he says, that's bullshit. And, da, da, da. And, um, and then we were done. We shook hands. And, like, it's like nothing happened. And I, I always said, it's, it's so easy to be like, fuck that. I'm not talking to that person anymore. They, they screwed me. You, you have a confrontation. You air it out. And uh, when it was done, it was, like, good as new. I always respected him for that. People love hearing these stories as much because of what it reveals about uh, the athlete. Don't you think at the end of the day what people want to know is, don't you, isn't a question you've gotten most in your career, what is blank like? like yeah. What is he like? What's he like? What's he like in those stories? And I always feel like you you can answer it superficially. Do I know it's Serena Williams? I, know. Really, I mean, I've, I've spoken to her. I mean, I can, I can tell you stories, but do I really know what, you know, do you know what anyone's like? I was a fool when I was younger, and people would be like, what's Gary Sheffield like? He's a great like? guy. Great guy, because he talked to me for 25 yeah, minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Total bullshit. Could be home beating his wife. I have no idea. Right. You know? yeah. but I have a great Gary Sheffield story. All right, go ahead. Why with this? I know. Inter- I, uh, yeah, I, I interviewed him once and before a game. He was, he was very accessible. Yeah, I always liked him. But he kept dumping Kahlua into his tin of chew. I'm thinking that's that's a new one by me. The uh, Kahlua basted chewing tobacco before playing a baseball game, but uh, I was right in his locker. Like uh, that's awesome. better that than whatever. Than, yeah, uh, guy's a good player. Performance enhancement. Yeah. Um, don't you also feel like partial to people that give you the time of day? Of course. Be, oh, he's such a self promoter. It's like I don't. You know what? Give me. I'm trying to think who would I cover. They the used NBA. to say that about Al Leiter with the Mets. They'd be like, he's such a phony. Yeah. But he would talk every day. No, like, so how big of a phony exactly, can be? Exactly, but yeah. also like, give me someone that makes my job easier. If so, oh, he likes the sound of his own voice. Right. I don't care. Great. Like that's the kind of person you want to communicate. I just want to say, I remember you telling me a story that I've actually thought of a million times, which is you interviewed A Rod one time right after he, he interviewed he Jack just, Curry. Jack Curry was. Wait, uh, what happened? Real quick. No, I, I got sent to uh, Texas when he went to the Rangers. Yeah. People were like, he's he's kind of a fraud. Like he's kind of phony. I said, no. Nah. So I talked to him and he says something about, I know exactly what the quote was too. You know, he's, he's very nice and smiles. Oh, Jeff, let me, great question, Jeff. I mean, he clearly had the, uh, yeah. these, these little, uh, these nuances down. Someone gave him some training of how to, and he had this thing, he had this bright smile. And he said, you know, but the main reason I'm here in Texas is I don't have any of these, as you probably noticed, and holds up his hands and there are no rings. Oh, that's a pretty good quote. Yeah, that's good. This guy seems modest, humble, da, da, da. I'm talking to someone else, and out of the corner of my ear, I hear, you know, whatever. Out of, uh, out, of, out of half my ear, I hear, and they're, be honest with you, Jack, the real reason I came, you may not have noticed this, but I don't have any of these. And I'm thinking, just gave the exact same soundbite with the exact same pauses. I mean, just absolutely polished yeah. to, to Jack Curry 30 seconds after I was just standing in front talking to him. Does he get credit for that, or is it just, like, ridiculous? I, I, yeah, I would I say uh, a More negative. A little both. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time, yeah, John. Was, uh, hey, pleasure anytime. <laughs> happy to come back. <laughs> All right, cool. I want to thank today's guest, John Wertheim, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow John on Twitter at John underscore Wertheim and read his work at SI.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.